Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only Internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatment so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Today's topic is... Does a gluten-free diet cause diabetes? I'm so very excited about today's show because I have Dr. Peter Osborne back on the podcast. In case you haven't heard our previous episode, I'll make sure that that link is in the podcast notes. And uh, let me let me introduce uh, Dr. Osborne to you. So Dr. Peter Osborne is a clinical director of Origins Healthcare in Sugarland, Texas. He is a doctor of pastoral science board certified in chiropractic medicine, and a diplomate of the American Clinical Board of Nutrition. In practice since 2001, Dr. Osborne's clinical focus is the holistic natural treatment of chronic degenerative diseases with a primary focus on gluten sensitivity and food allergies. He founded Gluten-Free Society in 2010 to help educate patients and physicians on the far-reaching effects of gluten sensitivity. He is the author of Glutenology, a series of digital videos and ebooks designed to help educate the world about gluten. Dr. Osborne, thank you so much for being back on the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me back. It's a joy to be here. So I, I know that recently there's been quite a surge in Internet activity when it, when it comes to talking about gluten and gluten-free diets and diabetes. So I wanted to ask you because... You're one of the most well-known experts when it comes to gluten. Um, can you elaborate on this topic? Absolutely. So there's this new circulating, um, I, I'll call it a rumor or myth because it's not true, and it's, it's basically it's information that's being, that's being misguided or misguiding people and being rewarded. But the American Heart Association recently held a conference, and some of the presenters at the conference presented some data and, and, and so understand it's not a research study that shows that going on a gluten-free diet actually causes diabetes or contributes to increased blood sugar. It's what we call prospective data. And so prospective data is they've taken these, these studies that are about 30, they've been going on for about 30 years now, and what these studies are is they are patients who fill out diet surveys. So mm -hmm. imagine, okay, we can go back in time and we can take 30 years of data from patients that have filled out diet surveys. And then we can kind of look at these diet surveys and see who's eating more gluten, who's eating less gluten. And then we can try to extrapolate information from that generalized data. And so in this, in this conference that the American Heart Association put on, what these researchers presented on is that people who eat less gluten have greater risks of diabetes. And that's actually the furthest from the truth it could possibly be because these prospective diet surveys don't tell us if these people are actually gluten-free. 
these 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 researchers didn't tell us that okay these patients weren't following a gluten-free diet they were just analyzing post post how much gluten they were eating versus how much gluten other people were eating based on surveys now Carrie, you know as well as I do, if we, if we tried to remember what we ate last week, we couldn't, right? If I said, sit down and write down everything you ate last week, you, you'd forget at least 50% of it. And studies have even shown that when you try to do diet recall research, people don't remember what they ate or they, they subjectively remember things that are healthy, but they kind of conveniently forget the unhealthy things that they ate. And, and that's what they record and that's what they write down. And so, again, when you're taking 30 years of nutritional data from surveys and making big, bold statements like a gluten-free diet can cause diabetes, that can be extremely misleading, and that's what's circulating around on the Internet right now. And I just want to be very, very clear because people are now using this circulating information to justify why you shouldn't go gluten-free. And we've got more research that says that people that actually eat gluten have greater risks of diabetes, especially type 1 diabetes. We know that gluten is actually one of the trigger antecedents for autoimmune type 1 diabetes. And we know that the grains themselves contain so much simple to digest carbohydrates that can elevate the blood sugar and increase insulin that we know that actually eating, especially processed grains, actually contributes to diabetes in a very big way. Now, what, what we can say is that when people go on a gluten-free diet in the traditional sense where they go to the gluten-free aisle and they're buying a bunch of processed gluten-free rice breads and corn chips and other garbage food, that it does raise their blood sugar. And because they're not eating whole grain, they don't have as much fiber in their diet. And therefore, you could say in that population, those people are doing themselves more harm than good. But anybody eating a highly processed diet is going to have a greater risk of diabetes regardless of gluten content. So you said a, a, a lot of important things there. So I want, you know, for the, for the listeners to, to really get this, um, you know, about surveys. It's so funny when you, when you were kind of describing that, it made me think, you know, with all my new patients, um, and, and you do this too, I'm sure, as you kind of go through that 24-hour you know, survey, what did you eat this this morning for breakfast? What did you eat today for lunch? And then what did you eat last night for dinner? And a lot of times patients have a hard time recalling that, like just 24 hours ago. And like you were saying, a lot of these surveys are asking what did you eat last week or in the past week. And so it can be extremely, extremely misleading. And then... And then also about there's a difference between a good, healthy, gluten-free diet versus a unhealthy, gluten-free diet. Of course, an unhealthy, gluten-free diet filled with these processed foods, gluten-free bread, gluten-free cake, gluten-free muffins, gluten-free bagels, that, that's, not, uh, that's not helping the situation, right? No, absolutely not. I mean, the, the cardinal, I, I call them the three cardinal rules of nutrition that if they're broken, you know, it doesn't matter what you try to do, you're not going to be healthy. Rule number one, very simple. You can't get healthy or achieve health or maintain health eating food that is not healthy. And it doesn't matter whether the package says gluten-free, sugar-free, fat-free, everything free, whatever the case might be, right? We've gone through diet trends over the last, you know, 100 years where people have, have gone on low-fat diets and no-fat diets and keto diets and low-carb diets and gluten-free diets and sugar-free diets and every other imaginable diet, right? It's not, and it, what happens is the marketers do a really good job of trying to market to people 
on buying particular products based on a connotation, based on a free quote-unquote connotation. But remember, just because something says gluten-free on it doesn't make it healthy. So you've got to stick to rule number one, which is if it's not healthy, it's not going to contribute to your good health. And then rule number two is don't eat what you're allergic, sensitive, or intolerant to because one man's food is another man's poison. So if you're allergic, for example, to dairy and you're, you know, you're eating ice cream at dinner every night, not only are you going to have a problem with the, with the dairy and the ice cream, but again, it also goes back to rule number one. Sugar's not good for you, so eating sugar plus something you're allergic to is like a double whammy. And then rule number three is listen to the wisdom of your body. It doesn't matter what any lab test in the world tells you that you're allergic to. If your body rejects it, if you eat it and you break out in rashes, if you eat it and you feel really sluggish and tired and dizzy, if you eat a food and your stomach hurts and you get severe gas and bloating, listen to your body. Stop eating it. Your body is smarter than, than any doctor, and you just have to, have to be quiet long enough to listen to the message that your body's trying to give you. So if you follow those general three rules, it doesn't matter what kind of diet beyond that you're following, you know, that's, those are kind of common sense rules for good health. And so you mentioned about the research, the link between eating gluten and type 1 diabetes. And can you elaborate more on type 2 diabetes? Because that's more, that's more what we're seeing out there in the public and more, more heavily lifestyle-related also. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's a lot of factors in, in type 2 diabetes, you know, what, what people call blood sugar diabetes, um, it, you know, it's not the one, I, I'll be clear, it's not type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition that damages the, what are called the beta cells inside the pancreas that produce insulin, so it destroys a person's ability to make their own insulin. We're talking about lifestyle-induced diabetes, lack of exercise, too much sugar, and I don't mean just processed sugar. I mean sugar in the form of many foods. A person can overeat fruit and develop blood sugar problems. A person can overeat uh, carbohydrates in the form even of what we might consider to be healthy carbohydrates. For example, you can overeat potatoes. You can overeat simple uh, starches. A lot of people going gluten-free are, are turning toward cassava flour, and they're turning toward tapioca. And these things can cause your blood sugar to spike. So if you're eating them every day in mass quantities, they can still contribute to diabetes even though they're gluten-free. But then you have the other grains themselves like corn and wheat and rice, which are highly glycemic, which are going to cause insulin spikes and blood sugar just based on their carbohydrate value, not based on the fact that they contain gluten. So you've got, you've got those elements. Then you have the fact that many of these grains themselves uh, and, and other foods like sugar, again, going back to sugar, sugar cane is grown genetically modified and it's loaded with a compound called glyphosate which is a pesticide that can disrupt gut function, create leaky gut, and it can, can trigger an inflammatory response in the liver and an inflammatory response in the pancreas that can make it harder to manage our blood sugar. So you've got pesticides. You've got the fact that grains are very highly glycemic and can cause blood sugar spikes and insulin spikes and contribute to diabetes. You've got the fact that many of the proteins found in grains, gluten being one of them, can directly damage through an autoimmune reaction, can directly damage the pancreas, can directly damage the liver and create a challenge for blood sugar regulation. You've got molds and mycotoxins that are found heavily in grains that can contribute to inflammation and blood sugar spikes and disruption in hormone levels that can make it harder to regulate blood sugar. For example, 
when you are eating foods that cause chronic inflammation, such as grains for many people, your body's normal response to chronic inflammation is to excrete from your adrenal glands a hormone called cortisol. And cortisol is our natural way to fight inflammation. But the side effect of, of secreting too much cortisol over time, in other words, it's one thing if we have an acute injury or acute inflammation, we make a little cortisol, we overcome it, we recover, and we move on. It's another thing that if every day, every meal that we eat causes inflammation, and so we're chronically excreting cortisol at higher levels. Well, think about what happens to, to your patients if they've been on steroids, like prednisone or corticosteroids. For any length of time, what happens? They start gaining weight. They start retaining water. Their face starts to bloat. They start to, basically, they start to lose their muscle and gain more fat because cortisol is a catabolic hormone. So let's think about this. If your food is causing you to make more cortisol and that cortisol over time causes your muscles to atrophy, then that, what that's going to do is it's going to shrink your metabolism. Your muscles are what are responsible for, for setting your metabolic rate to a large extent. So if you're, if, you're, if you're eating foods that cause you to make more cortisol and that causes your muscles to over time atrophy and shrink, and now your metabolism goes down and so you start storing more fat. Well, where are these people storing fat? They're storing fat around their heart. They're storing fat around their midsection. They're storing fat around their ab- abdomen and their, and, their, and their intestines. And this is inflammatory fat that they're storing. So they're actually storing fat that causes even more inflammation. And they've lost their muscle tone. And now it hurts to exercise because when your muscles shrink, when you try to exercise, your joints are more compressed. And, and when your muscles are, sh- are shrunk and they're atrophied and you try to exercise, they get even more sore. So this becomes a deterrent for exercise. So one of the best ways we can control blood sugar is through movement and activity and exercise. I actually call this the grain muscle wasting cycle because, again, if you're eating heavy quantities of grain in your diet that are triggering inflammation, that are triggering your body now to make its own cortisol to try to fight this inflammation, and that cortisol is causing water retention and weight gain and muscle loss, then basically what's happening is your body composition is becoming higher in fat, lower in muscle. You're storing more fat that is inflammatory, and now you end up in a position where you've gained weight and it hurts to exercise, so now you're deterred from exercise but you also can't regulate your own blood sugar, so now you're tired all the time and you don't have adequate energy. And when your blood sugar is higher, your blood is actually thicker. Your blood viscosity is thicker, so it's harder for your blood to deliver oxygen to your tissues and to your cells, and oxygen is necessary for the brain to get energy and for your muscles to get energy. So you're tired and you're lethargic and you're low in muscle tone and you're higher in fat composition and you're chronically inflamed and your body's in a constant state of catabolic breakdown, of course it's going to become a major, major problem. And that's what leads to diabetes and metabolic syndrome and elevations in blood pressure and elevations in cholesterol and triglycerides. And so we get this person who's kind of the perfect storm for cardiovascular disease. So that's a fantastic and and, and great description about all these different impacts of grains. But but I have to say, I still have patients that come in and ask the question, yeah, but grains are supposed to be good for us. Shouldn't, shouldn't I still eat grains in my diet? They're supposed to be good, even whole grains. So there's, there's this kind of dichotomy argument, and some people will say whole grains are good for you, and, and, and it's, not the, it's not that grains are bad for you, it's that processed grains are bad for you. 
I agree to that unless you're gluten sensitive. Now, if you're gluten sensitive, you shouldn't eat any grains. And the only way you can really detect gluten sensitivity is to run proper lab testing. Because even if you're, if you're gluten sensitive when you eat gluten, it doesn't mean you're going to have this violent inflammatory reaction right away that's obvious. Just like cancer doesn't develop overnight, you don't wake up one day and you had cancer when yesterday you didn't. It's a slow, progressive, chronic inflammatory condition that slowly tears the body down. And so people who are gluten sensitive who don't know it that are eating gluten, that are eating grains, their body is just being slowly torn down over time until it's torn down to such a great degree that they don't know why they're sick and they end up finding themselves in a doctor's office with a whole plethora of different symptoms that they now have to be that they now have to get addressed. But going back to the to the whole grain versus the processed grain argument, do whole grains are they more nutritionally dense? Do they contain fibers that are better for us? Yeah, they do. Sure they do. So so a person can make a very valid argument that whole grains are healthier for us than processed grains. I don't disagree with that. Where I disagree is is that when people make grains a staple food, even if they're not gluten sensitive, grains as a staple food are a bad idea because grains as a whole contain high levels of phytates, high levels of oxalates, which bind to minerals and make them hard to digest and absorb. Grains as a whole contain compounds and proteins called serpins and amylase trypsin inhibitors. There are a number of different proteins found heavily within grains that actually are designed to prevent our digestion. Remember what grains are. Grains are a seed. And as, as Mother Nature intended, seeds are designed to basically perpetuate the species of the grain, not to be our food. So Mother Nature gave these seeds the ability to protect themselves and in the form of proteins like gluten, like amylase trypsin inhibitors, like serpents. These different proteins actually shut down our pancreas and prevent us from being able to digest them very well. So if we're eating lots of grains, we're actually hindering our digestion from working properly because the proteins are designed, the proteins within the grains are designed to protect the grain so that the grain can come out in our poop. And it, right, it wants to come out in our poop undigested, intact, and now our poop acts as a fertilizer on the ground for that grain to continue to perpetuate its own species. So remember that just because we don't tend to think of, of grains as this as this living organism, remember, they're alive and they have the ability to protect themselves from predators and we are the predators. So if you're eating tons of seed-based food in your diet, understand that you're eating a lot of different proteins that are designed to hinder your digestion. And if you do that in enough quantity, in enough of a mass over enough period of time, you're actually going to cause digestive distress regardless of your gluten sensitivity status. So, Dr. Osborne, I'm going to act like a patient right now because you said eating a lot of whole grains is bad. So then I know from a patient's point of view, they'll say, then what about a little bit of whole grains? Well, I, w I would say if you want to eat a little bit of whole grain, then you can continue to be a little bit sick. Um, and, and what I mean by that is when I take a patient in, I'm not ever guessing about whether or not they need to go grain-free. I always test them. And that this way, we don't have any gray areas. There's no black and white. Should I eat whole grain? Should I not eat whole grain? Should I eat gluten? Should I not eat gluten? I want to know specifically, uniquely, what that person's diet needs to be. So I'll run very advanced biochemical testing, very advanced genetic testing to discern whether they're gluten sensitive or not, whether they're allergic to certain foods or intolerant to certain foods, so that we can then define what their diet needs to be uniquely based on the person. 
Now, if we're just generalizing and we're saying, okay, here's this person with chronic illness, with chronic diabetes, chronic autoimmune disease, should that person cut all gluten out of their diet for the rest of their life? It's a generalization to say that they should. We don't know whether or not they should because we don't know the internal workings of that unique person's biochemistry. So to tell them to go on a diet for the rest of their life is actually just a broad generalization in hopes that maybe they'll get better if they follow that diet for a while and maybe that will turn them into somebody who's paying at least paying attention to the fact that what they eat can have an impact on their health. Does that make sense? That makes total sense to me, yeah. And I think to a lot of listeners, too, it does make sense, even though they don't want to, like, um, totally uh, admit that grains are bad because they taste so good. I, you know, it's, it's that constant battle between your your head and your heart. But but the more I think all of us hear this, uh, and it gets repeated over and over again, uh, the more people really get on board and really do start eating a healthier diet for them. So I'm, I'm going to act like a patient again. Okay, so then, Dr. Osborne, what about soaking and sprouting my whole grains? Doesn't that make a difference? Aren't they healthy It, it can. It can make a difference. And for some people, I mean, here's the thing. If you're not gluten sensitive, um, could soaking and sprouting grains be a healthier way to eat grains? Well, that's what, that's what our ancient wisdom would tell us. There's a reason why the soaking and the sprouting of grains as a process in human prepar- food preparation exists is because if you don't do those things, they cause severe digestive distress. That's where that wisdom comes from. It comes from thousands and thousands of years of humans experimenting. So the soaking aspect is what a lot of the soaking gets rid of a lot of the compounds that that are harboring a digestive distress mechanism for us. The sprouting breaks open the grain because, you know, typically a grain has a hard outer shell that prevents us from penetrating it, that we could get access to the nutrients with inside of it. So sprouting opens that hard outer shell up and allows our digestive enzymes to penetrate it. So again, a person who's not gluten sensitive could potentially do sprouting and soaking of grains. However, you still have to you still have to differentiate whether or not that person is gluten sensitive or not because all the soaking and sprouting in the world and all the organic versus non-organic in the world isn't going to stop gluten from damaging a person if a person is if a person is gluten sensitive and like you said it's really about figuring out for for you the individual what foods are your friends and what foods are your enemies and the best way to to identify this is with proper testing. So, Dr. Osborne, can you talk a little bit about that, what you mean by proper testing? Absolutely. So proper testing should be done to discern these types of things before we would even attempt to embark uh, in confidence. Let me repeat, in confidence, because some people just kind of guess through these things. They do elimination diets or they do a diet for six weeks and see how well it works out or how well it pans out. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not going to discourage somebody from self-exploration. Um, but what can happen is, let's say you get six months into a diet of self-exploration and you've gone grain-free and you feel better, and then you, you, you start to say, okay, well, I'm going to try to see if I can add these grains back in now. Now that I feel better, let's try that out. And what happens is if you're feeling better, you're a healthier person, your gut is a little bit healthier, and it's capable of doing digestion a little bit easier. So it becomes a slippery slope. If you're truly gluten sensitive and you start introducing gluten back into your diet, you start to slowly become sick again, and then you end up in the same boat you were in in the first place. So this is where elimination diets, it's the psychology more than it is anything else. If you 
are a person and you've gone gluten-free and you've tried it for a while and you felt better and then you wanted to start reintroducing it, it's like where do you justify keeping it out for the rest of your life? That's a hard thing to do because we're surrounded socially by grain, right? Everybody wants to eat pizza and everybody wants to eat bagels and pasta and toast and sandwiches. You know, look at Jared from Subway. You know, he's you know, famous for losing all that weight, eating six-inch processed bromine-contaminated bleached bread, you know, full of processed meat. But that, you know, he, he basically went on a caloric restriction diet and lost weight. That's, that, there's no magic to that, and it doesn't make Subway healthy. So, again, it's, it's how do we take the guesswork out of the equation as we do proper testing? So what, do you, what, is that, what does that look like? Proper testing for gluten sensitivity is done by analyzing genes because gluten sensitivity is not a disease. It's a state of genetics. And so if you really want to know whether or not your body responds to gluten in a negative way, run the right genetic testing. We actually do this. I have a foundation that allows for people to come get genetically tested even without doctors. Um, and so if a person has gluten-sensitive genes and they eat gluten, then their normal response to gluten is going to be an inflammatory response. So this is what I meant earlier by if you're eating a highly inflammatory diet, Okay, then over time it causes muscle wasting and cortisol response and elevations in insulin and all these other hormonal disruptions. So finding out what foods are causing the inflammation. So if you want to get gluten sensitivity tested, get genetically tested. It's the easiest way to know whether or not you should avoid gluten for the rest of your life. It's not a temporary change. And again, gluten sensitivity is not a disease. It's a state of genetics. So doing genetic testing is what helps you identify whether or not you need to keep it out of your diet. As far as other foods are concerned and other chemicals are concerned, um, I like to do an array, what's called an immune array, where we're actually looking at, there are six different ways that we know of that the immune system can have a response in a delayed fashion. So there's, there's two kinds of allergies. There's what we call acute allergies, which is when we can have a reaction within 30 minutes of exposure. And most people that have an acute uh, allergic reaction to something already know it. For example, the person with the peanut or the shellfish allergy, they eat them and their throat constricts and their lips swell and their eyes swell shut, right? We call that anaphylactic shock or, or angioedema. You know, they, they develop symptoms that are quite obvious. But then there's another type of allergic response. It's more delayed and it's more silent. And these are the, like, these are the types of things I like to test for. There are six different ways the immune system can react in a delayed fashion. And so I like to run a test that measures all six. And so, so this is how we start with patients is we run this type of testing that measures all six delayed reactions so that we know if a person is reacting to a food in a delayed fashion. And a delayed window of reaction can be from three hours to three weeks. So let's just say you ate something today and you start reacting to it two and a half weeks later. It's hard to do an elimination diet to figure that out. And elimination diets can be done and they can be helpful for some people. So I don't discourage them. It's just that if you're out hitting a wall, if you as a person are, are struggling in your health and you can't figure out why and there's just kind of this mysterious, I'm try I think I'm doing everything right, but you're not quite sure, this is where this kind of testing can save your life. I mean, I've had patients who literally were, were terminal, and they didn't know why. And, you know, in one case, a young child was allergic to blueberries, uh, been, been given a death sentence. They were dying, and they were eating blueberry smoothie every morning for breakfast because that's healthy, right? But it wasn't healthy for them. I had another gentleman who had a, this severe skin rash, didn't know why. He'd been to see 60 different dermatologists. He actually was, was invited to a dermatology conference, and every doctor at the conference 
he was sitting in a room in his underwear all day, and every doctor who was at the conference came in and looked at him and gave him their best guess. Well, within a couple of months, we, we identified that this, this gentleman was allergic to a few key foods, and as soon as we got those out of his diet, within a couple of months, his mysterious skin, skin rash went away, and it hasn't been back since. This is the power of understanding delayed reactions and how to identify delayed responses in patients because sometimes a delayed response can cause inflammation in the skin. Sometimes it can cause inflammation in the liver, sometimes in the brain, sometimes in the intestines, sometimes in the muscle. It's a, you know, food allergies are an equal opportunity destroyer. They can affect any tissue in the body at any given time depending on the unique nature of the person eating it. And so it's, a, it's important to identify and understand how to identify these different types of delayed reactions if you really want to truly get to the bottom of why a person's illness is there or mysterious illness is there even though they've maybe done a whole lot of great things by changing their diet, exercising, getting enough sleep, you know, lifestyle parameters, but they're still struggling. So the genetic test is a pretty easy test to do and that it's usually either a saliva test or a swab inside your mouth, right? Yeah, it's a cheek swab. So even like a, a, a six-month-old baby can do it. And the great thing about genetic testing is that you don't ever have to repeat it. You do it one time. If you have positive gluten-sensitive genes, then you have positive gluten-sensitive genes. Your genes will never change. Your genes' behavior will change based on what you do to them, but your genes themselves will never change. So in, this, in the case of gluten-sensitive genes, if you have gluten-sensitive genes and you stop eating gluten, those genes will not create inflammation because they're not being exposed to gluten. If you expose those genes to gluten, then they'll, they'll, they'll start creating inflammation as a result of that exposure, and that's 100% controllable by diet change. And then the more in-depth testing you were talking about, do you feel comfortable naming that lab or the test itself? So that it's several, it, listeners it's, will know? It's several different labs. We actually okay. have, yes, we actually have, uh, in, one of our, in one of the labs that we use, we have a, a customized platform that we use um, to get this kind of information, but it's several different labs. There's not one lab that does it all, and it's important to understand that part um, because, again, there are seven different ways the immune system can respond. There are six of them are delayed, and so, again, if you don't get a full comprehensive picture of all seven, then you could be missing a very, very key piece or key element and, and not get somebody better. That's fantastic that you say that because, because you're right. From a clinical standpoint, a, a test can only tell us so much, and there's no test that's going to tell us everything. So that's fantastic that you mentioned. It's not just one lab. It's not just one test. There, it's a variety of things to really get the whole picture. Yeah, absolutely, and, and there are a lot of really well-intentioned doctors out there that will run food allergy testing, and one of the biggest complaints, you know, that, 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 that is out there is that I ran this, this one with one doctor, and it showed this, this one with another one, and it showed this, and depending on which ones they're running, uh, depending on the methodology, because there's IgG labs, there's IgA labs, there's IgM labs, there's IgE labs, you know, there's different methodologies in terms of testing. And then you also have some labs that are out there running food allergy tests that are, that are using what are called proprietary systems, meaning there's no, they don't disclose fully the science behind how they're doing things because it's proprietary. And so there's no, there's no ability to really judge whether or not it's, it's applicable or not or actually accurate or not. I've actually taken some of these labs with proprietary methodologies and double-blinded them 
And I can just say from my experience, the double blinds that we've done uh, have shown such deviated results even on the same blood sample like one lab that's out there I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention their name because you know I, I don't want to talk bad per se about anyone but this particular lab on a double blind randomized sample we found 37 percent difference on the exact same blood so in one of the in one of the samples they were allergic to these things and in another sample they were allergic to, to things that were 37 percent different which is not acceptable like clinically that's not acceptable because you you know you don't really know what they're reacting to. So Dr. Osborne, we're starting to to run low on time, so I wanted to ask you, we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything that we've not touched on yet in these last couple of minutes that you think is important for our listeners to know about gluten, about grains, about diabetes? I think you know what we we could we could touch on things for hours and hours and hours, but I, I think ultimately I think maybe a good parting message is this. If you are struggling in your health and you feel like you've done everything right, like in your diet and in your lifestyle, but you're still struggling and and you're not getting a solution that you're after, don't go it alone. Get with, find a a well-trained functional medicine doc who can guide you, who can run the appropriate types of labs, who can take away a lot of the guesswork so that you can get answers and get meaningful, real solutions. But don't feel like you have to go it alone. Because there's a lot of great doctors out there, and there's a lot of great books, and there's a lot of great information. But remember one thing about all of it, and including my stuff. Like, I, you know, I've got a best-selling book in No Gray, No Pain. All books are generalizations, right? I mean, it's not unique to the person reading the book, although it might offer great information and great help. It may not be unique enough to get a person better. For example, my book, the story I gave you of the child that was allergic to blueberries and had a terminal diagnosis, if they would have followed the no grain, no pain protocol, they would not have gotten better. It was actually technology and it was additional testing that allowed us to get them to get better. So my point is, if, you're, if, you're, if you feel like you've got everything dialed in well, but you're still struggling, get with a qualified functional medicine expert and get the right kind of testing and get the guesswork out and, and get the right pieces of the puzzle in place so that you can restore your health. Fantastic. Dr. Osborne, how can our listeners find out more about you? Well, number one, they can visit my, my home base, which is drpeterosborne.com. That's drpeterosborne, O-S-B as in boy, O-R-N-E, dot com. And there they can learn about me and my mission, and they can, they can find our clinic, which is Origins Healthcare, if they want to learn more about that. Uh, the other thing they can do is they can go to my foundation, uh, glutenfreesociety.org. And glutenfreesociety.org is where we have tons of information about the gluten-free lifestyle, how to go properly gluten-free, how to get genetically tested for gluten sensitivity, um, and all the different components socially and, and everything you could imagine about gluten we house on our foundation and a lot of that information is there. It's free to access. It's up there for you and your listeners to access and use. And then lastly, if, if people want to read my book, it's No Grain, No Pain. They can pick that book up at nograinnopain.com, or rather, nograinnopainbook.com. And if they buy through that website, they actually get a bunch of free bonuses, whereas if you go to Barnes & Noble or the bookstore, you won't get the bonuses that we offer. So I encourage you to buy it through that site if you want to pick up our, like we have a 60-page leaky gut manual bonus that people can pick up. We have an autoimmune 
recovery matrix that people can pick up as free bonuses when they get a copy of the book. So I encourage you know, going to that website to get the book if that's something that your audience is interested in. Fantastic. So for the listeners out there, I'll make sure that all of those links are in the podcast notes so that you can easily find Dr. Osborne and all of his resources. Dr. Osborne, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been another awesome interview. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm always happy to come on, and, and, uh, and thanks for all the work that you do. I know putting yourself out there and getting this knowledge into people's hands is, is a bold endeavor, especially in the, the anti-alternative medicine establishment that we are surrounded by. Mm-hmm. All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Peter Osborne. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.